Welcome to Live to Grind. My name is Brennan C. Adams, serial entrepreneur, inventor, TV creator, and speaker, passionate about helping others create something great and become unforgettable. Join me each week to discuss practical ways to help you increase your income and impact as an influencer in your industry. My goal is to help you take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brennan C. Adams, and today's show we have James Whitaker. Really excited for you to hear this episode. I interviewed James back when I was on the book tour here in September, and we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about investing, we talked about his experience in the financial industry, we talked about when he was in Australia, when he grew up there. We even talked about his teenage years, why McDonald's didn't hire him. Yes, we talked about that. And also just an experience from creating one of the largest CrossFit gyms in Australia, creating a social media following for, that had hundreds of thousands of followers. We talk about what to look for in investment. James talks about how when he was managing a team of 30 financial advisors, managing over $2 billion worth of investments. You know, there's some really good stuff in here in terms of what he looks for in investment, just some tips around investing. I asked him what his best investments have been. He talks about that. He shares that. And that that was really fascinating, just kind of going to that. Um, but also, he talks about his book, Andrew Carnegie's Mental Dynamite, which he took the writings from Napoleon Hill that was from an interview with him and Andrew Carnegie, and he turned it into a book. He got the permission from the Napoleon Hill Foundation, and he wrote Mental Dynamite, which I've read. It's amazing. I can't wait for you to learn from this show. So many great things. But before we go into it, I want to do a shout out to We Are Podcast. James is actually one of the guys behind We Are Podcast. It is an event that brings the best podcasters to you. You get the chance to learn from them and including myself. I'm actually moderating a panel. I'm going to be moderating a panel with some superstar podcasters. Even if you've seen the show with Zach Efron, the Down to Earth show, I'm actually one of the guys on the panel is Darren, who was a co-host with Zach. And we also have Jordan Harbinger and some other amazing podcasters on that panel. I'm going to be moderating that and going over how to make money with your podcast show. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, if you have a podcast and you want to know how to monetize it, this is the event for you. So go to wearepodcast.com. That's wearepodcast.com. Put in the code BTA for 20% off. That's BTA for 20% off. Again, go to wearepodcast.com. Super stoked for that. It's going to be a good time, and I hope you join me for the venture. So let's jump right into it with my good mate, James Whitaker. Let's get started. How's it going, everyone? Brandon T. Adams here for the Brandon T. Adams Show, and I'm sitting with a good friend today who is an author, a producer, a speaker, a world-class coach, and he was worked with a lot of amazing people. He's author of Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, producer of the movie Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, and also recently the author of The Mental Dynamite. I'm sitting here with James Whitaker. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. Dude, it's always a pleasure. I mean, anytime I come to AA, I stay at the Whitaker Inn. Uh, <laughs> we've we've had a lot of fun together. You've been on my show. You've, you feature my story for the book. We collaborated on the movie together. 
and you even were the fishing for my wedding. So, I mean, we're like basically brothers. We're connected for life. Now. We're connected for life. And, you know, you're one person I can literally share anything with, which is hard to do in this world. Like it's, you just don't know. I can trust you and you're a great human being. So I acknowledge you for being a great human being, but I'm excited to jump into this. I'm going to give you questions, just random ones you're probably not used to. Yeah, I love it. Um, the first one is talk about Australia. So you're from Australia. What was it like growing up in Australia? It was good. Australia's a beautiful place. If you love the outdoors, it's a it's an amazing place. It's also a very young country. So people who move from Europe and go to Australia looking to explore, uh, you know, the history of Australia and art galleries and things like that. I mean, we just don't we just don't have that compared yeah. to how long Europe is how long ago Europe has been around for. But um, it's also a much smaller population and, and very very spread out. But it's very very relaxed. So yeah, it's just a great outdoor culture. It's a great place to grow up. Um, one part of the culture that I don't love is called tall poppy syndrome, which is where basically people are happy to see you doing well on the condition that you're not doing as well as, you know, or much better than they are. That was something that that has frustrated me at times. And there are a lot of Aussies who live here in LA where I live now, uh, who one of the reasons they're here is to get away from that. But overall, Australia is just a fantastic place. And I, I do feel that overall, the entrepreneurial culture is getting a lot more support than what it has historically. What, what was it like growing up? So like what kind of person were you in from like eight years old to your teenage years? What did you do for fun? We grew, we grew up on a 10-acre property in the middle of nowhere. So uh, we had a, we actually had a, a neighboring house, one neighboring house, and then that was it. There was no one else around. So our days would just be spent at the at the house, you know, like just, yeah, just, just hanging out at the house, playing with, um, you know, with toy soldiers and, and, you know, little, I did that too. Yeah. yeah little BB guns and, and things like that. So that was pretty much the, the life growing up, but I, I really had no idea of what I wanted to do when I was younger. And it, as I got older and you start to realize, realize the people that you have are heroes, are, there's, there's no perfect person and that you have this idea in your head of what you want to achieve, but that when that doesn't come to fruition, it, I think it can be tough, particularly for teenagers, to figure out their place in the world. I mean, I was very young when I went to get a job at McDonald's. I was eating a lot of McDonald's at the time. I thought I'd be the perfect staff member. And I walked in there to, you know, it was the first job officially that I had applied for. And which I thought would give me freedom and a, and a good uh, a good income, so I wasn't dependent on doing the household chores to get my pocket money. And I walked in for this interview, and they said, "Why should we give you the job?" And I just sat there in silence. I had absolutely no answer. And after about a minute, I said, "I don't know." And they said, "Thanks for coming in." And I was like, "Oh my god, I've, I've botched this interview. How embarrassing!" From McDonald's. From McDonald's. Yep. And I think I was twelve or thirteen or something at the time. And I would call them every week because I was still optimistic. I'm like, you know, all of my my wages would have been reinvested straight back into the company. I was the the perfect employee. And finally, after a month, they basically said that uh, I didn't have the job. They'd employed someone else. And I thought, wow, what a what a great start to my Pretty professional career. Yeah, 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 I've failed at a job at McDonald's. <laughs> well, do you feel like you were born an entrepreneur or did it eventually like you had to grow into that? I feel like I grew up as, as a bit of a black sheep, as the one who didn't, re- not not for doing bad shit necessarily, but for not fitting. Come on now, you did some bad shit. <laughs> yeah, I, there were some things I did, you know, <laughs> blowing up letterboxes and other things like that that I'm, that I'm not proud of, um, you know, and, and a few, you know, many years in my teenage years where I was causing my parents a great deal of, you know, heartache. You know, I, I always had a good heart, but these are things that were just um, not great for my parents. And certainly as, a, as an older brother who I have, who was two years older than me, 
who was a lot better than I was academically and not, you know, creating mischief and mayhem around and terrorizing the streets like I was. It was a very different child than what they than what they had experienced. But a lot of that is is what drives me today is that knowing that I went through those difficult things and and had caused my parents who were great people and have gave me every opportunity that I could ever want. A lot of what I do right now is to give back because I know that there are so many people that don't have that great foundation to start their life. And I feel like I have an obligation to help those who are, you know, who didn't have that growing up. So my favorite part in the book for Thinking Rich Legacy is about your dad, about Noel Whitaker. I mean, if you don't know your dad, uh, I don't know your dad. He's well known in, in Australia for being an author, sold millions of copies, very successful. What uh, the thing I think about is when your dad almost lost everything. He what was it like? Did you were you old enough to understand what was going on in your dad's life when he was going through that entrepreneurship journey and hitting that rock bottom moment? I, I was very very young. I think I was only two or three years old at that time. So he had, he, you know, he had a reasonable, a reasonably successful career at that time. He had a, a big entrepreneurial roller coaster with the, the dizzying highs and lows. And then what happened was he was doing a property development deal that he got lured into. The interest rates were at something like 18%, so it was very, very difficult. He had a business partner and then a third business partner who had gone bankrupt previously, which is not a great, um, you know, which is not a great thing that you want to be a part of. And, you know, there are, it's easy to see these red flags looking back at it. But that was an opportunity then when it just went, they, they thought they had a great opportunity and the whole thing completely went under. And they had to, you know, they were at the point where they had to, you know, basically say, do we sell the house and everything that we own? How do we get out of this? Because the interest rate was accruing so big at 18%. It's a lot of money that they were needing to pay every month just to stay afloat. They had a whole bunch of is issues with the tenants. They didn't realize that the... I think it was the bakery didn't have an opportunity at the back where they could bring the, st the stock in. Same with the butcher. Yeah. Um, one of the tenants was was poached by another property development down the road. So it was a, a disaster across the board. And my mum had said to him, uh, lose the house, but never lose your good name. And that's a real testament to the integrity that both of them that both of them had. And the lessons in that, it's funny, one of the quotes that he has, which is, I think, his favorite quote of mine, that says, sometimes an expensive lesson can be worth every penny. And so true. yeah, he went on to write a book, a personal finance book. It was the first book he'd ever written that he shopped around to a bunch of different publishers. No one wanted it. And in that book, it was personal finance lessons, but it also included a lot of lessons that he learned the hard way from that property development deal that went belly up. And that book went on to sell more than 2 million copies. It was wow. called Making Money Made Simple. And I think at one stage in Australia, as one in six households in Australia had a copy of that book. It was a bestseller, I think, in South Africa and Singapore and Malaysia and New Zealand and the UK. Like it went all around the world. And that was released, I believe, in 1988. And it was at that point where I remember that journey. He was just my dad. Like everyone, I don't know, it's hard for me to speculate on what other people say. But for, for me growing up, he was just my dad. So the experiences and things that we had were normal. I always wanted a dad who was sporty, who would go and kick the football with me and go and do things like that. Um, the fact that I had a dad who who wrote and sold books, I didn't, you know, I, I just didn't, didn't really, understand that. Yeah, I didn't understand that. And I didn't really, I didn't really care about it. But I, I would certainly, as we got older, and I was twelve and thirteen years old, he would go and speak at events with people like Jim Rohn, where he would be selling his books there, and I would be the one that would be would be selling the books. And um, in the car on the way to school, he would always be playing the personal development cassettes, which used to drive me nuts because I wanted a dad who would listen to <laughs> rock music and cool radio stations. It was, uh, yeah, it was only in my 
probably early 20s and mid 20s after I had had my own epiphany and my own journey of, of really finding myself and being on the journey that I'm on now, that I developed this immense respect for who he was and the platform that he had created for me. So, so our parents literally are the ones that form us, like how you're raised, like they will ultimately determine, I mean, like your dad, my dad was an entrepreneur, mm. but I've met your mom and your dad, love them both. Can you explain your relationship with your father and relationship with your mother and the difference between them? What is it like between those two different relationships? My dad's a very, very hard worker. So he's still up at five in the morning or four thirty in the morning every single day working, you know, working constantly. And we collaborated on a book together called The Beginner's Guide to Wealth. That was basically a personal finance motivation and success guide for younger people who wanted to get started. So that was released about 10 years ago where we tell it from me with a younger person's perspective and him from an older person's perspective. And, it, you know, it was a great project. But as a result of that, we've had uh, revisions that have been done and, and just, you know, revised editions that have been out. We've got the 10th edition that's coming out soon. And he is always on my ass saying, you know, we need this, we need that, we need it yep. translated into Spanish. And I'm like, I have a lot of other really big things going on. Yeah. Or if he wants help with his newsletter that needs to be released, because we have just helped each other a lot over the years with everything, where he will email me on the Saturday at 4 p.m. and then he'll call me on, on Sunday at lunchtime to say, where is it? And I'm like, I haven't even seen the email. Don't call me 10 times and, and, and ask me where it is. But I love that work ethic. Uh, about him, that hard work and that integrity that he's had, as well as that willingness just to help other people. And then from my mum's side, so she was a, a homemaker and, until I think she was 36 or 37 years old. And then she decided to go to um, university for the first time where she did a psychology degree. Yep. And then she went into, career, into a career helping um, children who were the victims of, of domestic sexual abuse. I mean, some horrible and, and horrific oh, wow. things like... Um, you know, seven or eight year old girls who had been sold into, into prostitution for a packet of cigarettes. I mean, some Crazy. really, really horrible situations like that. So what I, what I learned from her was just very much the, the empathy. She's a extremely nice person. She really is. No one could ever say a bad, a bad about, you know, a bad word about her. Oh, she is so nice. Mm. Shout out to her. I mean, <laughs> your, your family, your, it's great family and it obviously formed you into who you are. So when you, you came to the U S you were in Boston what was your first like entrepreneur endeavor you did once you came to the US? So the first one, well, I had so many different ideas. The big one that I wanted to do was an app development company. And I mean, I have got gigabytes of all this stuff in there, just business ideas. I've got probably hundreds of businesses that were never even, never saw the light of day. But the big one I wanted to do was create an app development company. And I had like 10 different app development ideas in mind. And then I, uh, so as a result of that, I knew that I needed to find the right people because I knew very, very little um, about app development. I read a, you know, I thought I would go and find the best book that I could find. I, yeah. From memory, I believe it was a book called um, Appreneur written by a guy called Chad Morita. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it was. And I I studied that book and I realized a big thing from that, that if you don't control uh, the end-to-end -end product, it's a very, very hard thing to do. I don't control the app store. I, I don't I, I can't, I don't have the tech ability to be able to create the app, which means I need to go and pay for these different things. And the average cost of creating an app at that time, it was 30 grand in 2012. 
And that was when I was like, holy shit, if I'm creating 10 apps, that's $300,000. There are other apps with people who are tight with the guys who work at Apple who can get their things on the app store. I didn't have all those different things. So even though I had all these amazing ideas, they never went anywhere. So then I was going to create a TripAdvisor um, aggregate thing, which is funny. There's a bunch of them out now with the, with another friend of mine. So we had that idea, which we would, my buddy would come over. He was at a different university. We'd just drink beer and we'd eat pizza and we'd you know, be up until four in the morning, think about what company that we were going to do. And eventually, you know, we just had so many different things going on and we realized that it wasn't quite the right idea. But the one that I executed on was a social media media brand that ended up having a couple of hundred thousand followers. And we ended up creating a um, activewear company off the back of that, which did well. And then, but again, we had the same challenge with that where we you know, we had to hire a graphic designer or, or a fashion designer. We had to do someone through the e-com side. We had to get someone to do all the, you know, package everything. And we realized all the different SKUs and you're trying to fit a hat into a, a, a you know, an envelope or a box that's got to be shipped out, all of these different aspects. And then we had a, you know, a gym, which ended up being one of the largest CrossFit gyms as a result of that. So a lot of different business ideas, many of went nowhere some of which started, which many of them went nowhere as well. And another big one that we were ready to go, I had the two best sports dietitians in Australia to create a supplement company. It was at the nice. point where we needed the minimum order quantity was going to cost us 30 grand. And I recognized that my two business partners in that venture and me too, like we just had a lot of different things going on. I just had that that instinct that it wasn't going to be a success and it was better to make that decision early rather than pay the, you know, the 30 So you, you've been in a lot of business relationships for most people because people think, okay, I got to get in business somebody right away. What would be your advice for somebody before they think about getting into a business relationship? Like what are three things they should look for or just advice so they don't get into the wrong relationship? So I have learned there are some friendships that are just too valuable to go into business with. So Will Charleston, very good friend of mine, you you know him. We've yeah. uh, Will and I have known each other since we're nine years old. We're, our families are, are extremely close. He's been my best friend in the world since we're since we're nine years old. Uh, you know, we were the best man at each other's at each other's weddings and um, I will never do business with him because our 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 friendship is just too good to lose. Now if he is an opportunity where he needs money for a business, which I don't think he will, but or if he wants investors, he's one of those guys like you as well where it's like if you want a hundred grand or whatever it might be, because yeah. I, I trust you and I know you guys are at the highest integrity. So I think that's a really, really important one. I think asking people the amount of people who have a business idea but haven't done their due diligence around what else is out there in the market. So that one's not necessarily a business partnership. But if someone comes to you with an idea, the first question I would ask them is what other ideas like that exist Good. and what's your plan to make money from that idea? I mean, the number of times that I have gone out there to try and create a business um, proposal to figure out really what uh, how are you going to make money? I would ask my brother, who's a partner at a corporate finance company, and I would tell him my idea and he would say, that's great, but how would you make money from it? And I'd be like, oh, that's such a simple question, but it was such a such a pain in the ass. And then the probably the third tip would be just figuring out what your MVP is, your minimum viable product. Yep. So don't be a perfectionist. Now, I'm a Someone described me last week actually as a high functioning perfectionist because yeah. I, I really am with, with everything I do. It really, you know, it pisses me off. I can imagine it pisses a lot of other people off, but make sure you've got a great concept. Not doesn't have to be a perfect concept, but make sure you've got a very good concept after exploring the market and doing a lot of work with your target market. And once you've got that, 
that is when you can you can go to market. But uh, yeah, they would be my three tips for anyone who wants to start a business or find the right partnership. So it's good to do a lot of research and see what else out there. Don't just jump into something because, I mean, take time. Because mm. if you're going to go into business with somebody or pursue an endeavor, mm. you want to make sure like, hey, if I'm going to spend my life on this, I better know exactly what's going to happen and not find out six months, 12 months later that, hey, there's already something exactly like it. Yeah. Or this person's not somebody I want to work with. And there is one really important point, which I, I didn't mention there, and which I think you can really speak to this too, is that the absolute best way to get good at business is just to do it. It's to find mentors to obviously help guide you through. But, you know, I, I have done, you know, I've got a master's degree in business. I've got like the advanced diploma in, in financial services and two undergraduate degrees. They are 1% of the expertise that I have now. The other 99% is of the businesses that I've had that have failed and succeeded and of the people that I've met and the books and things that I've read. So you, you've been a financial advisor and you've managed a large sum of money. What what have you learned in terms of investing and, and working with money that I think everybody needs to hear? Well, I, I managed a team of 30 financial advisors in Australia that had more than $2 billion under management. And the funny thing about that was that people who were, maybe they're a lawyer or whatever they might be, a doctor, they might have a very successful career, but they actually know very, very little about personal finance. So just because you're an expert in one field doesn't automatically make you an expert in another. And those people automatically think that they're going to get it. And as a result of that, they can make some, some stupid decisions. I think anyone who wants to get good at personal finance is to first think about what they want. Where do you want to go? What do you want of success out of all areas of your life? Do you want to rent? Do you want to buy? There are very good arguments for, for both of those things. My wife and I bought a house a year ago. The interest rate that we have with our mortgage is you know, slightly above 3%. I think it's 3.2% at the moment. So that means that we can, you know, that my shares, my share portfolio is making between 10 and 15% over the last, you know, so we can borrow, if we can, can maintain 10 to 15% a year, we can borrow money all day at 3% to be able to, yeah. to be able to do that. Um, so once you've got that idea of, of, of what you want, is it the kids' school fees? Is it a house? Is it a holiday? Is it a car? Is it money for a business? Um, lifestyle expenses, figuring out what you want out of all of those different areas and then figuring out where your money is going currently. So what money have you got coming in and what expenses have you got going out? Everyone's busy complaining about why they didn't get a promotion or why they don't have enough money. But if you can cut your expenses by 20%, well, then you've already given yourself a 20% yeah. increase in your income. So they were, they're probably the two biggest things that I would do. Get clear on what you want and figure out where your money is coming in and going out from so you can make those adjustments. And then just putting a system in place that you can make that process easy. So there are many apps and websites out there at the moment that can give you a easy way of managing your household budget. There's apps like Acorns. There's a bunch of others where anytime you go and spend money, a portion of that will automatically be deducted that will go straight into an account that will nice. invest based on your risk profile without you needing to touch it. You might go and get a cup of coffee for $3.10 and then you can say that that will be rounded up. So 90 cents of that will then go and invest in you know, a diversified portfolio, whatever it might be, money that you don't touch. Because if you can't touch it or you don't see it and you make the process automatic, that's an easy way to get it done. I mean, everyone inevitably finds a way to get through the week or get through the month. You will survive in 99% of cases with the money that you've got coming in. But if you wait until the end of the month or the day before your next payday to make that decision to go and invest, then you're inevitably going to find that there's no money there to do that. It's got to be an automatic system. It reminds me, you've probably read the book, Richest Man in Babylon. I have, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and Richest it, Man it, in Babylon, it, one of my favorite It tells kids. you how you got to take a percentage every yeah. month. It actually shows you too, an example 
it's stories from ancient times, but like stories of people that owed a bunch of money and how they paid their debt back mm -hmm. and how the perspective on it. And and the one thing too I took away that I in terms I want to ask you is it's making sure when you do invest money, you don't just invest things randomly. Like you got to understand what it is, be smart with that investment, build that relationship. So for you right now, over the past 10 years, what have been some of your better investments or areas you think that are going to be great investments in the coming 10 years? Well, the best investment for me was when I was very, very young. It was making the decision to put money away. So the process that got me educated about that and to create that process was when my dad said to us three kids, he's like, any money that you want to go and invest, I will match it. We're talking, you know, five bucks a week. So then that would be $10 a week. And that over time. I like that. Yeah. So simple. It's so easy for pretty much any parent to do. So that was a, a good way of getting into that habit and starting to build that financial portfolio. Because when you would get that quarterly statement and you'd be like, wow, there's 500 bucks in there. And you'd look at what you wanted to buy. And I was never one. Like, I'm, I'm just, you know, you're the same. We're just not material people. people. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm very, I'm perfectly happy to see the money in the account and knowing that I could buy something if I want rather than necessarily going to buy it. So over time, when that came to the point where it's like, cool, well, we need to buy a house. I have had this account now that ended up being that when I had a job where I was earning X amount of money and, and putting that money, sorry, I was putting away X amount of money a month that the bank would match that by way of a margin loan, which is, you know, the loan to valuation ratio there was about 50%. Oh, wow. So whatever the dollar amount was, whether it's, you know, let's just say a thousand bucks to keep it easy. If you're putting away a thousand bucks a month, the bank can match that, which means you've got $2,000 a month working for you and you can get a tax deduction on that uh, on that loan that you've got from, from the money that you borrow. If you've got $20,000 in the bank already, you can get the bank to match that. So you've got $40,000 to start off with. The NASDAQ has been, uh, you know, has done roughly 19% a year over the last, I think it's 10 years. I mean, if you're doing that, you're absolutely crushing it. Now it's it's really important that the market works in cycles. There will inevitably downturns and things like that. But probably the biggest investment or the best investment that I've had would be that managed portfolio that I had when I was very, very young because it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing for 20 years. From a share perspective, Facebook has been a, you know, has yeah. been a, yeah, has been a great one. Um, that's, you know, more than tripled since I got into it. There was a company and that was because I was understanding it as a user and also as an advertiser. I just knew that there was absolute and the amount of attention that was on there. I just knew, um, I absolutely knew there was no way. And I, I very rarely have this feeling. I knew that there was no way that wasn't going to absolutely crush it. And they had their challenges, things like the congressional hearing, but that did very, very well and continues to do well. There's another company, Atlassian, um, which I went to, which I think I might've told you about recently. Yeah. I went to a friend's barbecue and I was chatting to a guy there and I said, what do you do with yourself? And he said, I work for a company called Atlassian. And I said, oh, I've been thinking about investing in that because it's a software company, which means it's very, very scalable. It's an Australian company that's listed here in America. And he said, you should, because we've never hired a sales team and we're going to absolutely crush it when we're timing yeah so i bought shares in that i think it was about 38 dollars or 40 dollars and what is it now i think it's um you know 200 and something dollars nice. a share little things like that but I, I think overall the best investment you can make is in yourself and um yeah that over time is what enables million dollar opportunities down the track everyone wants instant monetization but it's relationships Look at the long game to, yeah but also i think it's important for people not to let their emotions how often have you seen where people let their emotions get involved and maybe they sell with fear because if you wait out the storm in the long term, obviously, as you said, like 
you look at the NASDAQ or the stock market, over time, it's a consistent amount over X amount of years. Absolutely. So if you're, and I'm, I'm extremely bullish on the US stock market. I actually don't own any shares in Australia anymore. Um, we have a, a few more governmental challenges. It's a bit of a, a bit of a nanny state where they probably want to overregulate it a little bit in Australia. America is this hub for companies like Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft. And I mean, you name it, these companies just keep churning out over here in America. So I am very optimistic about America and I probably always will be from a economic and stock market perspective. Obviously it's got its own challenges, but getting into that habit, having that discipline, that as you said, it neutralizes your emotions that no matter what is going on, you've always got X amount of money going away a month. You've got that habit, that commitment. When the stock market drops, you can buy units, you can buy these shares at a cheaper price. And when the stock market increases, it means that the portfolio, the, the value of the underlying assets increases. And one of the best things that I love about shares rather than property, it means that you can sell them at the, you know, at the click of your fingers, which you can't do with a house. You can't go and you can't go and sell the kitchen, but you can with, you know, Facebook shares or whatever shares as you own. What do you what do you see in the next 10 years with the stock with everything that I mean we live we're in a pandemic right now. We're going through interesting times mm -hmm. election. What do you see on the horizon for the stock market in the next 6-12 months? I think we're we're moving into a great shift into different things. It's hard because there are companies like Amazon that have already enjoyed such massive growth, but during the pandemic other companies have been absolutely decimated. Amazon, they were very very big at figuring out those supply lines. They've already got a lot of this stuff in place. With their tracking system, they can see exactly what products do well. Uh, an example is a product, there's, a, there's a, a cookware product called Le Crusette, which retails for like 400 bucks or something. There was a, I wanted to get a, a bigger version of these pots. We got one of these as a wedding gift. And there's an Amazon, uh, what's the Amazon brand? I forget what it's called, like Amazon Basics. Yeah. It was 40 bucks, the exact same one. It was literally 10% of the price. We bought it, it's perfect, it does the job. Amazon does that now in clothing, cookware. I mean, the most random shit, they've got this exact same thing that they can do, which means they can offer it at a much better price. They know exactly what copy works well. They know exactly where how much people are buying so they can manufacture for that quantity. A company like Amazon, I think, is going to continue, continue dominating. The two hardest industries in my personal experience are hospitality, like restaurants. Yep. And I mean, we've seen that here in the pandemic. It's very wiped difficult. Out, absolutely. Uh, and the clothing game. I think that's dead set impossible. Unlike, you know, I was... I had a clothing company and as successful as it was, we were never in a position to be able to pay ourselves a wage. If you're competing with H&M and Uniqlo that can get a product into a store anywhere in the world for like less than a dollar and you've got to spend 15 or $20 to have the exact same thing, I mean, you've just, you've really got no chance. So I'd think about big companies that aren't um, exposed when something like a pandemic hits, which would be something that can be automated and scalable. And I just keep coming back to things like software as a service. There are so many good things like that coming out. I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm advising a lot of tech companies in, in software as a service, and it's it, like there's so much exponential growth, mm. especially with the internet and everything mm. now. And I look at in terms of like the future, what's mm. coming with everything. I mean, look at Amazon. Like who would have thought they're crushing people and they're yep. making things so easy. And I saw a nice business in terms of restaurants. We would deliver to these mom and pop stores. I, I mean, a bar, the The average lifespan, I think was like maybe 12 months. Mm. They would come in, they'd work it. And I almost knew, my dad and I always knew if they were going to make it or not yeah. because they had to work it. And it, it's just a difficult business to be in that space and i think unless you really love it and it's your passion there's a lot of other ways to make money and that's why i saw nice businesses like 
I can make a lot more money with a lot less work and not using my back. I can use my brain. Like, look at what is possible out there. Absolutely. And then, so we think about a company like Amazon. So obviously their profit is the, as a massive impact is the cost that they have. So these companies that can remove these costs and they're just going to continue to do well. So they're a scale. Yeah. yeah, So there are machines now that can do things at like 99.99% accuracy as far as sorting different packages and that come in and figuring from the warehouse and figuring out where they need to go. This technology already exists. If you've got a human that can do that at 97% accuracy, but you've got millions and millions and millions of packages. There's no way you're going to be able to compete with a machine. That's what exists now. When their trucks and things don't need a human, when warehouses and things don't need a human, when manufacturing doesn't need a human. I mean, it is just... We got to figure out ways to reinvent ourselves because if we don't become a person of value in a different way, it we're going to be replaced by AI. We're going to be replaced by a robot. I mean, the next 10, 15 years... These things are going to be automated. You don't need a human. You yeah. look at fast food. Yeah. Back, back in the day, Burger King or McDonald's, there's not going to be people at the, the service window. It's going to be all automated. Yeah, there are supermarkets now and convenience stores where people, you just put some stuff in your bag and you walk out and it automatically scans the, the prices of yep. everything that's it, going it, yeah, on. Yeah, Amazon, yeah, where it's, it's, what is it, RFD or something where you, it, it'll scan everything in your basket so you, and it automatically charges your card. Yeah. There are coffee there are coffee shops that exist at the moment that are purely done on machines, and I'm, I'm sure they're not closing yeah. during a pandemic. So you're an author. You've wrote multiple books, and we're going to jump into Mental Dynamite, which I love, by the way. It There's a lot of people out there that have a great book in their head, and I look at you. I mean, I've wrote multiple books, but I can say I look at you, and you're a really good author. What is the formula to writing? Like maybe there's three tips in terms of how to go about your book how to avoid different mistakes, how to create a book that will sell. Like what have been your tips? Because you've been very successful at this. Well, people, I think the first one is don't die with the music in you. A lot of people, they they just don't think they have the expertise. I tell you what, some of the best authors on the planet or the best business leaders who become authors have outsourced 99% of the process. So first of all, figuring out that, yes, you absolutely have the capabilities to be able to do it. Then I think it's it's got to map it out. So you figure out what's the story that you want to tell. And as a result of that, you've got to think about what value can you add to the reader as a result of them, not just investing 20 bucks to buy your book, but investing 10 hours or 12 hours, whatever it might be to read the book. So what are they going to, what's their return on their investment from their money and their time from them spending that with you from the book? One of the best ways to do that is to think about, well, what's the the end book? It's like, that's a very, very difficult goal to have. But if you break it up to say, cool, what's my, what's my method of helping people and the story that I want to help or the story that I want to tell? Cool. That's two or three sentences. Then what are the topics underneath that? Well, that becomes your chapters. And then you say, cool, what's a, what's a topic do I want to tell for each of those chapters? And then three sentences that sum up those, those chapters, and then maybe getting a motivational quote or an inspiring quote or a quote that sums up that chapter. I mean, that is an easy way that all of a sudden what you've got to do that already you've broken that up into about 30 different tasks that are very, very easy for anyone to do rather than one impossible task, which is writing so small little yeah. components, bite size at a time. Absolutely. Little chunks rather than a 60,000 word project. And then once you've done that, get help. I mean, there are some people out there who just aren't technically good at writing. I'm technically, I was, I was never technically, I was always found it comfortable to write, 
but I was technically never very good. But then I went to university and got an English degree and a writing degree, and I actually taught professional writing at university. So technically, um, you know, I wasn't a professor. I was a, you know, I, I managed tutorials, which is like the supporting things for the, the classes to help out the professors in the lectures. And that got me technically good. I'm not like a, a crazy editor or anything yeah. like that, but technically I, I'm very comfortable writing a book from, from start to finish. Very few people can do that. And there is a very big difference in the perceived quality. So there are so many people out there who can help you craft the story, who can help you technically get very, very good. Or ghostwriter if needed be. Absolutely. There are many, many opportunities out there that you can get for people who can just go and, and ghostwrite it. But without that process, I think it's very, very, very difficult for people to get a book out. Also, I think it's it's never going to be perfect. So many people go back and forth, Lee, and it's like, it's never going to be perfect. Yeah. Like, having, you having, got to publish the damn thing. Yeah. Having a publisher with a gun to my head is, is one of the best things to do because it yeah. means that inevitably you're going to, you're going to get it out. So then when it comes to distributing the book, you got to think about, cool, who are the people? Who is the audience that this book is going to help? Write a list of those people. Um, I love the things that you've done around having a book launch and just getting around to as many people as possible, having that promotion. The big challenge traditionally with a publisher, everyone thinks, cool, if I get a publishing deal, then I'm set. But the problem with that is the publisher thinks the author is going to sell all the copies. The author thinks the publisher is going to sell all I the know. copies. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, it just doesn't It just doesn't work like that. So having, an, having a a a qualified, renowned publisher can be very, very powerful. And one of the best things I have ever done in my entire career was when I was flown to New York about a year ago to go and speak at the International Book Buyers Conference. There are book buyers there for Costco, Target, Walmart, people from all over the world. And they hammered me on this book topic. I had to present for about 20 minutes on this book. And then they said, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Tell us about that. Tell us about this. And then we sat in a boardroom afterwards with the 20 biggest book buyers and they hammered me like, why haven't you thought about this? What about this concept? All these different things. And they really throw you in the deep end. And that's a great way of refining this book to ensure it's a fantastic finished product. Yeah, you uh, doing the book tour here. I'm in L.A. and I did a six city tour for the road to success. But it's funny, every bookstore that I was in, I saw Mental Dynamite. And it was like, awesome, man. It's funny, it's like, I'm talking to you now. Mark Victor Hansen just texted me because I'm meeting him tomorrow. And a guy that wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. You think of like the only other book that sold more copies than that was the Bible. Can you imagine 500 million copies Huge. of a book? I mean, your father, 2 million. And I mean, your book is crushing it right now. And and so I want to talk about this. And, and how, first off, because Napoleon Hill wrote this. In what, 1908? So the interview took place in 1908, and it includes his research up until the 1940s. It was it was the interview basically transcribed, correct? Yep. And so you came in, Napoleon Hill Foundation brought you in to rewrite it and then add your own edits and notes and everything. What was that like? Because it, it had to be crazy because this is something that the world hasn't seen. You got Napoleon Hill asking one of the greatest entrepreneurs, successful, wealthy men of the world, Andrew Carnegie. What was it like basically seeing notes and be in the minds of these two successful people. It's it's cool having a career where basically my job is to go and study the most successful people in the world. It's just a really it's just a really awesome career because it's something that I'm very, very interested in and it gives me an opportunity to help people. But I think the best part of that was knowing that I had this manuscript that barely anyone else, you know, maybe only a handful of other people had seen. So that to me was really, really inspiring and making sure that I just didn't get overawed by the opportunity. So there's Napoleon Hill who interviewed Andrew Carnegie, who I think today is still like 
either the first or second wealthiest person in the history of the world. He was a guy who was a penniless immigrant who came over from Scotland, had nothing. And it was only when he was shown kindness by a person who basically gave him access to a library where he could read every, you know, any book that he wanted to read. And Andrew Carnegie said that he would pay it forward if he was ever in a position to help other people so they could be successful. And I think one of the big points here from Andrew Carnegie's mental dynamite is that was lost with Think and Grow Rich when everyone's so focused on Think and Grow Rich being about money. But what Andrew Carnegie and Napoleon Hill were trying to do was create the world's biggest mastermind. They wanted to give people the gift of being able to help themselves. And what they wanted to try and do from that, their big intention, their big mission was really harmony and prosperity and raising the standards of living for people everywhere. So some of the topics this book covers, I mean, it talks about ways to get our education system back on track homelessness, democracy. I mean, you know, relationships in the home, it really has everything covered in this book and what I've tried to do. So it includes excerpts from that original interview from 1908. It includes Napoleon Hill's thoughts from different parts of that interview up until the 1940s. And then I've gone in to give examples of the world's best performing individuals and companies since that time of people who have been able to crush it and achieve the true meaning of those principles in a modern context so people today can get the exact blueprint they need to achieve the success they want. You know, what I love about this book is it goes deep into your thoughts and the emotions because I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to figure out how to control their emotions, control that negative, positive energy, and it goes into that And in terms of thinking. So I look at in your life. I know when you were – uh, at a younger age, maybe it was in your 20s, where you had anxiety and it was very difficult for you to be in a public setting. How, what was your th- thought process? How did you overcome that? Because now you're speaking in front of people. You're on, I mean, what, 10 shows a week during your book launch. Yeah. You're always in front of the camera. How did you overcome that anxiety and that fear of uh, public of of watching you? Because there's a lot of people out there that don't know how to overcome that. Yeah, it's I think a lot of people see people on screen and they don't realize the amount of work and the journey and the, you know all the tough days that have gone, the really difficult dark days that have gone on behind the scenes. And like anyone, I've had a great amount of those things myself. So in my teenage years, I mean, I was an absolute mess. I just had no idea who I was. And if you don't know what you stand for, then you'll fall for absolutely anything. Yeah. And the way that manifested for me was just a really debilitating anxiety battle. Where in high school, I just, I could barely sit through uh, an exam. I think there were two or three exams exams I remember vividly walking out of because I thought that I was going to throw up or I was going to faint. There were other situations from that anxiety where I was, I remember working in a liquor store when I was like, I don't know, like 19 or 20 years old, I forget what it was, where I ended up actually fainting and, and throwing up and collapsing on the floor because that was like 25 minutes into the shift because I couldn't physically, my anxiety was so bad, I couldn't physically stand to be in there in this, wow. you know, in this liquor store. And that to me was something that had always gave me an, an immense sense of shame, knowing that I had actually, in particular, come from a, a good family. I was given a good education. You know, I, I came from a loving family. I was born in a country like Australia, which is, you know, one of the one of the greatest countries in the world where, you know, almost everyone in that country has the opportunity to create great success. So there I was in my late teens and early 20s, and I felt like a malfunctioned version, a malfunctioned human destined for the, for, for the scrap heap. And that was such a difficult moment for me. And you have those moments where you look in the mirror in tears and you say to yourself, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, yeah. Why am I on this planet? Like, why don't I just do the world a favor and, and leave? And yeah. it was a, 
a conversation after that incident in the liquor store where I came home and I, I said to my mum, who was the only person who I trusted to share these feelings with, because I looked up at my dad, like, look, this high-performing yeah. business leader who I just, you know, he'd never had any issues at all with anxiety. So he, he just didn't get it. My mum had had her own, her own battles with anxiety. So I, in a moment of absolute disgust with who I saw in the mirror and where I was at in my life, you know, I was drinking too much. I was eating shitty food. When I basically said to her, I can't live like this anymore. And she said, um, you can, you have everything you need to succeed right here and right here and tap my head and my heart and I'll never forget it. And I'll, wow. I'll never, ever, ever. Bless her soul. Yeah. And that's why I love my, you know, I love both my parents so much. They're the two greatest uh, role models for me, but I'll never forget that, that moment. It was, that was the most defining moment in my life where it wasn't a straight line and nothing outwardly changed. But inside I said, you know what? And I planted a flag. And I said to life, here I am, come and get me. And that was the moment that I started reading every book. And I mean, every book that I could find on mindset, peak performance, athletic ability, healthy eating, everything possible to take ownership of your financial, physical, and mental health. And that's the mission that I'm on now that I will continue to do to my dying breath is to help people take ownership of the financial, physical, and mental health. And my journey through that, I have recognized that it's helping people win the day. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. It's what you do today is the most important thing. So giving people the tools to help people make the most out of today. Well, you are doing that right now. You're helping a lot of people. You've helped me. You've helped a lot of people over through your books, your podcast shows. What? So the book is out, Mental Dynamite. What's next for you? Oh, I'm a bit nervous actually. There's too much. There's too much going on. So we've got this uh, this great company called We Are Podcast with my good friend and business partner in Australia called Ronsley Vars, who's a great guy. So people can go to wearepodcast.com to check that out. Our whole idea for that is we've realised during the pandemic that people have a podcast show but they don't know how to monetize it. So we get the best podcasters, entrepreneurs, and yeah. marketers on the planet. We host four events a year. We've got our program called We Are Members where people can come and join. Where you know we spend like six hours a week helping these people absolutely it's a great community it. yeah i mean i when i spoke like the people there amazing people yeah absolutely and then i've got you know another i've got a journal book project coming out very soon which will be the supporting companion to this book i've got other book projects and and too many things going on but above that just balancing my duties as a yeah as a dad is the big one because you know you you um, oh, yeah. you spend a lot of time with us you know with our daughter sophie as well she's so I, cute yeah i love her more. shark time yeah that's right she's, <laughs> i got that still by that <laughs> she's making uncle brandon sing baby shark oh, over and man. over again but i i love her to death and she's it's weird she's like just instantly become my best friend and i um, I love spending time with her and it can be very draining energy wise, but I just, I see her growth and it inspires me so much. I mean, she can speak a lot of words in Spanish and things, and she's already crushing me in the development game. She's a hell of a lot smarter than I think I was at 20. She is at yeah. 16 months old. So I just, no matter what's going on, I want to make sure I'm always there to give her, you know, just that unconditional love and, and by being there present to be there in person. How, how is having... Sophie, change your perspective on, on entrepreneurship and life and achieving. Making sure you never forget what it's all for. I think as entrepreneurs, it's very easy for us to have that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or that carrot on the end of the horizon. And the moment we get there, we say like, oh, wow, that wasn't as, you know, that wasn't as, as fun as, as what I thought. Uh, or, you know, it wasn't as, um, you know, it didn't mean as much to me as what I thought. You get there and it's like, oh, my brain is instantly, what is the next achievement that I can have? And then I say to my wife, look, you need to look after her now because I've got a call at 7 p.m. or something else that's going on. So yeah. 
that's really, really unfair for the people that we're in, in relationships with. And you and I are fortunate in that our wives will tell us if we're stepping outside yeah. our bounds in those things, but they're also very supportive. If, you know, the day that we had Sophie, um, we, the day that we had got home from hospital, um, we left hospital, I think at one o'clock on the Friday, um, at 3 PM that afternoon, I was on stage at the Anaheim convention center speaking in front of like 600 people. You, yeah. 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 Like I, I slept, I think three hours that week, but it was a, it was a big important event. Um, Jen was totally fine with that. And I've also, and a lot of people might cringe at that and think that's crazy, but I spend far more time with Sophie than anyone else as a, as a parent. You were with us later that day at a mastermind. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is, these are the, there are times when there's ass that needs to be kicked. And I will always make sure I'm available to do that for those opportunities that can move the needle. But there are times when I also need to be home, just having that presence there. And that's when I'll, that's when I'll always be there. Well, mad respect because I have no kids and I just watching you being a father, like, and doing everything you do is very inspiring. What would be, before we go here, for the viewers, listeners, what's your best advice to leave with them? Probably the big one would be the slide that I put up at every, literally every single speech. And that would be each day, if you do not make the decision to win, you've automatically made the decision to lose. And the idea of that basically, that. yeah, if you wake up and you've got no idea what winning looks like today, we're not talking about, you know, anything that's intensely competitive. Maybe it's something like starting with a gratitude journal or recently I've been starting with a cold shower, which, oh my God, I love more than anything. Amazing. Yeah. I hate walking into the shower, but it's a great feeling afterwards because you get those sustained yeah. energy levels. But some of the things that I write down in there, maybe it's to do a workout, maybe it's to get X amount of words written for a book project, maybe it's to bring a great energy into a podcast that I'm doing, maybe it's to have an hour in the afternoon where it's just me and Sophie going for a walk through the neighborhood. So by figuring out what a win looks like for you today doesn't need to be business. And in fact, I think it's very, very powerful to make sure you've got a balance of things that are going to make sure that the reason that you're on this planet and the things that give you the most joy, that you're making time for that each day. I love that. I love it. Dude, it's always a pleasure, brother. I enjoy coming to LA, seeing you, having a conversation with you. If somebody wants to connect with you, whether it's speaking or or just connect you on social media, where can they all find you? Go to Instagram, James Witt, J-A-M-E-S-W-H-I-T-T. Link in my bio. There's a whole bunch of resources available for people. You can check out the Win the Day podcast. So Win the Day with James Whittick is available on YouTube and everywhere podcasts are, and they can grab a copy of Andrew Carnegie's Mental Dynamite in bookstores all around the world. So for all of you watching, you got to go get this book, Mental Dynamite. This is a game changer. I love this book. If you're a Thinking Your Rich fan and a Hill fan, get this book. It's in Barnes & Noble. You'll find it right by my book, The Road to Success. You'll find it online. And I highly suggest you get this. You connect with James Whitaker. And as always, it's time for you to go out there, create something great, and become unforgettable because life is too short not to. I'm Brandon T. Adams. Have a great day, everyone.